What's up? It's Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Thanks for listening to the Under the Hood podcast presented by Coors Light. Stay inside and buy your Coors Light online. Find out how at get.coorslight.com. Coors Light, take time to chill. What's up? It's Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Thanks for listening to the Under the Hood podcast presented by Coors Light. Stay inside and buy your Coors Light online. Find out how at get.coorslight.com. Coors Light, take time to chill. The summer of football. All you can ask for is another opportunity to play this game. It burns in me. On ESPN 1000. We don't know how many we got. I don't know how many I got. Make it count, boys. Holmes. Flushed out again. Turning the corner. Fires downfield. Caught. Touchdown. Only Mahomes. You throw to score and run to win. Here's Saquon Buckley. And he's off to the races. The 30. The 20. Saquon for six. The summer of football at eight. Here's a quick throw to Miller. Good throw. Touchdown. Fake to Armstrong. Run. Book five. Got time. Launching for the end zone. Jump ball. Touchdown. Terrence Marshall. The summer of football with Jonathan Hood. Yeah! That's my dog! On Chicago's home for sports. ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. It is time for the summer of football. Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app as we give you Something football, something college, something pro, something fantasy. Tonight is a preview of the NFC North. What do the Bears have to deal with in the NFC North for 2020? We are talking about it right here on Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. One big note for the NFL is uh, Miles Garrett of the Browns. Five years, $125 million deal. Uh, so we'll keep our eyes on that. And also Dak Prescott. Will he be re-signed by the Cowboys? Well, again, we'll keep our eyes on that story as well. Talk to Michael Rothstein, who covers the Detroit Lions uh, for ESPN.com, part of NFL Nation. I got his thoughts on the Lions offseason. I mean, you know, they, they're trying to add depth. They're trying to add speed, and they're trying to add players who can get them to win this year if, if there's a season this year. And they've done it in every level uh, and on every phase of the ball. If you look at what they've done in free agency, they brought in a lot of guys with Patriots ties, and that was done at least somewhat strategically because they figured there wasn't going to be a spring or that there was a good chance there wouldn't be. And these guys at least know the system, know Matt Patricia, Matt Patricia knows them. So the learning curve would be less steep in a training camp, whether it's a longer, shorter, or whatever we end up having. And then you look at the draft, and I think they might have drafted four day one starters out of the draft. They knew they needed an influx of talent, and they knew the positions they needed it at, and I think they attacked those positions fairly well. They, they still have a pretty large hole, I think, at defensive tackle, and I think they could probably use another edge rusher, but I think they otherwise at least – on paper, solved some of their problems. Now, does that make them a lot better? I, I, I can't tell you. I don't think anyone can right now because no one has seen anybody except for virtually for a long time, and, and all these guys are doing stuff through virtual meetings. They're not getting any working on the field. 
Michael Rothstein covers the Lions for NFL Nation on ESPN.com. He joins me, Jonathan Hood, on Under the Hood on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Uh, without hyperbole, Michael, I will tell you this. If you cannot run the football with Kerryon Johnson, Bo Scarborough, and DeAndre Swift, then the Lions will never be able to run the football. And I'm, it's serious because as a Georgia guy, I saw Swift, and I just I think that he's a terrific back. You know, that's pretty much running back you at Georgia because that's what they do the best. But someone's got to be able to emerge out of here to be able to run the football effectively to get the pressure off of Stafford. Because otherwise, then that means that they'll they'll never be able to do it. (laughs) Because I I believe in all three of those guys, seriously. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's listen, it's been the. This will be season eight covering the Lions this year, and it's been a revolving door of running backs, and it's been a revolving door of the next guy. You know, and that starts with Reggie Bush back in 2013, who was a 1,000-yard rusher. And they had a good rushing attack in 13 and arguably in 14, although injuries set in in 14, with Reggie Bush and Joyke Bell. They haven't had that consistently since. They drafted Amir Abdullah, never really panned out. They drafted Carryon Johnson. When Carryon Johnson's healthy, he's pretty darn good. But he's only played in 18 of a possible 30. 32 games. So he just hasn't been available. And now they draft DeAndre Swift. And the plan is going to be pretty simple. It's all of these guys are going to get the ball. Bo Scarborough, DeAndre Swift, on Johnson, maybe even Ty Johnson or Huntley, who they drafted out of New Mexico State in the fifth round. There's going to be a running back by committee in Detroit. They're going to try and figure it out. Is Swift a part of that? Absolutely. Is he the lead back? Potentially. But the way Matt Patricia, I think, wants to run his running backs is not have a lead bell cow, you know, Matt Forte like for Chicago people back like in years past. That's just not the way that New England runs things. That's not the way Patricia has wanted to run things in Detroit, no matter who the back has been. And now they have more options to kind of keep those guys fresh. And frankly, I think in part to keep on Johnson healthy because the less hits he takes, the less chance he has of hurting a knee or or another body part again. And then if you have all of a sudden in December, DeAndre Swift, Kerryon Johnson, Bo Scarborough, and, you know, insert fourth back here, all healthy, that's a pretty potentially formidable running back room at a time of year when you need to be able to run the ball. And that's what Matt Patricia has always wanted since he got to Detroit. So, Mike, let's take a look at the ebb and flow of the schedule for the Lions. Uh, on Thursday, we're all excited to see how the uh, schedule would line up. And for Detroit, it starts with the Bears on the 13th of September. And I should probably ignore these dates because we don't know exactly when these games will take place. But we just know it's Bears-Lions at the beginning uh, at Ford Field, followed by Green Bay and Arizona on the road, and then New Orleans into the bye. That's going to be New Orleans games at home, followed by two road games against Jacksonville and Atlanta, against Indianapolis at Minnesota against Washington at Carolina, against Houston, against the Bears on December 6th um, at Soldier Field, Green Bay at Tennessee, Tampa and Minnesota. You know, it's hard to tell exactly what the lines will be because for me, Mike, I'm looking at the first four games It's the bye. I think that will tell a great story about how the Lions will go about their business. And, and, uh, you know, what I would consider a tough game on the road against Green Bay and then New Orleans was always very difficult. How do you foresee the schedule, the way it lines up? First of all, the fact that you just said that this was Thursday 
I'm uh, my. It feels like three weeks ago. <laughs> oh, let's just start there. That schedule was released. My my mind is a little bit of processing right this moment that that was in fact less than a week ago yes, that that happened. So beyond that, yeah, I look at the schedule and I think it's a very first, very tough first four games. And the game you didn't mention in there, I think, might be the trickiest of all, and that is at Arizona, because I think that offense is going to be very, very good this year. All of a sudden, you have an offense with Kyler Murray at quarterback, DeAndre Hopkins and Larry Fitzgerald and Christian Kirk at wide receiver, Kenyon Drake at running back, and an okay, at least, offensive line. And Cliff Kingsbury's offense, which once I think they get all the pieces, going to be very dynamic. Find me a find me a secondary in the league that has enough talent to maybe cover that. And I think it's going to be a really really tough game in Arizona. The Lions have always struggled with the Cardinals in Arizona, dating back many years. Just look at last year when they were up, and then Kyler Murray does Kyler Murray things, and they end up in a tie to start the year. I look at it, and yeah, I think the first four games could tell you a lot, but if they're one in three out of the first four, I don't think their season's over. I, because it's very, their schedule's very backloaded with home games, and I think that there's about five or six, maybe even seven, real toss-up games on this schedule. The Arizona game being one of them, at Green Bay being another one of them. I would say the home game against Chicago, I think that's a game that they probably should win. That can really go either way, but the crux of those are in that middle of the schedule, maybe from like weeks eight to like 13 or 14 going through, I would say probably the game at Chicago, like right maybe from Atlanta to the game at Chicago. I think almost every game in there, except for the one at Minnesota, it to me is a toss up game. And that to me is where their season goes one way or the other is how they handle that stretch. You win five, five of those, four of those games, five of those games. I think you're in pretty good shape potentially to maybe make a run at the playoffs. But if you win two or three, then I, I don't know. You know, I think you got to all of a sudden start making up games somewhere. And I, who knows? I mean, I, every generally I look at the schedule this time of year and I just kind of shoulder shrug emoji and, and just roll with it. But <laughs> this year, even more so without, the spring without knowing what, even though you know who the rookies are, you don't know what any of this is going to look like. You don't know how much time people are going to have. We don't even know when this is going to all start. I, I think this year, especially, you can just be like, I, I honestly don't really have a clue. I don't know. I picked them in our, uh, when the schedule came out, we do game by game. I picked them at eight and eight. Usually I do that anyway, but this year I really felt like there's, that's probably a good place to, as any to start with almost every team in the league, except for maybe like a Kansas City or a Cincinnati or something like that on a positive and a, and a negative end. Because we just don't know so much even about when this thing's going to start and when that first game might be. Because we've heard different things about maybe potential contingency plans, right? We've all heard them. We don't know about them, but we all heard them. That this Chicago game might not even be week one. Who knows? Michael Rothstein covers the Lions for ESPN.com. Interesting perspective there when I talked to him earlier on. We move from the Lions now to the Vikings. Chicago's own Courtney Cronin covers the Vikings for NFL Nation on ESPN.com. Um, and when we take a look at the draft for the Vikings, Courtney says that the Vikings seem to answer every need very well in this past draft. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think that 
especially where they were drafting at 22 and then they had the 25th pick, but they traded back to 31. I think the value for what they got was tremendous. I mean, nobody expected Justin Jefferson to be available there at 22. I mean, his stock, I think more than any other receiver that last month of the draft was rising skyrocketing uh that he could have been one of i mean he was one of the five receivers taken off the board in the first round and um i mean there was there was no doubt in my mind that they were going to go receiver once we saw philly take jalen rieger from tcu um and they had their chance at 22 they didn't have to trade up they didn't have to move around at all they got the player that they wanted and and he fills a big hole with stefan Diggs now in buffalo so that's a great pick and then you know moving back from 25 to 31, you, you were going to pick a corner there anyways. It was either going to be a corner or an offensive tackle, and I think that they really read the board right because they didn't need to, you know, overdraft and, and take Ezra Cleveland with the 31st overall pick. Like, they got lucky. I mean, I don't know if they could, if they necessarily could predict that or say that, oh, yeah, we knew that there would be no offensive tackles taken until we get Cleveland in the second round. But, you know, to get a cornerback like Jeff Gladney, at 31 and in the process getting the equivalent of a late third round pick in the trade with San Francisco, that's not just, you know, filling a need for your team. That's also, you know, getting some really good draft capital. So you could try to have more bites at the apple later on. I mean, that's, that's Rick Spielman's philosophy and not everybody agrees with that. I mean, you can see the teams that have five and six person draft classes. That's not the Viking strategy. Um, But, you know, they, they had a lot of needs, whether it was, defensive end and trying to figure out what you're going to do now that Everson Griffin's gone um, and with wide receiver, cornerback, offensive tackle, you're not just, you know, a lot of those positions you're drafting for now, but also in the future. I mean, Ezra Cleveland, the tackle that they took out of Boise State, probably their franchise left tackle if all goes according to plan. Uh, so you can move on from Riley Reese and his expensive contract next season. So I think they did a good job. And in a lot of cases, best player available was also their biggest need at the time that they were drafting. Courtney Cronin covers the Vikings for ESPN.com and NFL Nation. She joins me, Jonathan Hood, on Under the Hood on ESPN 1000 and the brand-new ESPN Chicago app. Let's take a look at the Vikings' schedule. There's some. This is very interesting um, before the bye, Courtney, because, and for those of you driving, we will tell you what the schedule is. So it's Minnesota will be at home against the Green Bay Packers to start it off, and then at Indianapolis, against Tennessee, at Houston, at Seattle, against Atlanta at home into the bye. Um, I wrote down uh, four wins uh, before the bye. How do you see the ebb and flow of that? That's very interesting. So there's some gut checks there early. Yeah, I think that, you know, the the travel that they have, um, you know, going to Indianapolis, going to Houston, um, those are, you know, good statement-type wins. If they can take care of business early on the season, I mean, especially the fact that you have Green Bay, to start out in week one, you can already have an edge up in the division race and have the Packers be chasing you the rest of the season until you guys meet again at Lambeau Field later beyond the bye. I think that's a great position for them to be in. I mean, on paper, the schedule looks really, really difficult. And if you take a look at, like, strength of schedule uh, for their road schedule, it's tough. I mean, you have, like you mentioned, I mean, Seattle in, you know, before the bye, and then you've got New Orleans on Christmas Day, and you have to go to Chicago again, uh, where, you know, they just don't win in places like that. They've got two primetime games at night in two places where they just don't win, which is Seattle and Chicago. So I don't think any of that was ideal. But, um, you know, when you, when you take a look at kind of like where the draft, excuse me, where the, where the schedule is right now and just kind of what the reaction should be, I think by and large they have a really good chance to 
win the division this year. And I know we say that just about every year when we're looking at it, but a week seven bye, um, I'm looking at my schedule right now. I actually had them at just like you did four and two uh, going into week seven, which I think is pretty reasonable. I mean, and I just to correct that, that Seattle game is week five. That's before the bye. Um, But, you know, it's tough. They've got a couple of hard back-to-back Houston and then Seattle. um, And then, you know, a couple others like, you know, New Orleans and Detroit to fin- at New Orleans and at Detroit to finish the season. Uh, but realistically, I think that they are probably a 10 and six team at best nine and seven at worst, because you have a lot of new pieces there, but schedule in a way did them some favors. Cause it's not, it looks difficult on paper, but just given the strength of how a lot of these teams have changed, I think they should be in, a, in an okay spot. What, what was your initial reaction to see? And again, with the world that we're living in right now, who knows how accurate these dates will be? I I have no idea. When I saw the schedule, I wasn't even looking at dates as much as it is just who's playing whom, because I don't know if I can even trust that the opener for, say, the Vikings is September 13th. Who knows? Yeah. But but I, I'm interested in finding out that Christmas Day game. Like, like yeah. Was, was there was... a conversation between Goodell and Silver? Was Silver mad at Goodell for, for putting – I mean, the NBA ultimately starts on christmas day that's an odd odd choice yeah no i mean that's um i i just don't think they care i think that they're doing their own thing and christmas falls on a friday this year i think it'd be different if it was a tuesday or a wednesday or even a thursday um and they see an opportunity there for a very good rivalry in the nfc i mean that that rivalry for people who don't know i mean that's been budding since 2009 since the nfc championship game and over the last four years four seasons since 17 this is going to be their fifth time playing each other we all know about the minneapolis miracle Mm -hmm. um we all know what happened in the playoffs this year i mean there's a lot of history between those two teams so to kind of switch things up when you're typically used to week 16 that being a boring division game either in detroit or chicago um to have a marquee game like that on christmas day i don't think you could have picked a better matchup uh, but it is a little weird because that's the end. I mean, Christmas Day is owned by the NBA, and it has been forever. Um, I mean, there's been the, the Monday night football games on uh, Christmas Day, but that just it just has a weird feel to it because it's on a Friday, too. Uh, and the NFL never schedules games for a Friday. But, you know, if they're playing at that point, if the season goes according to plan, um, it's definitely going to be one to watch because that's the place. I mean, they've – you know, they've had some really big thrillers down there in the Dome, and the fact that they had that walk-off win uh, with Kirk Cousins effectively securing his second contract in that game alone uh, in the playoffs, I mean, to go back there to kind of the scene of the crime, I mean, that place has been good to them, but they also know the heartache uh, given the 2009 NFC Championship game uh, of what that place can bring. So I think it's a great matchup. Courtney, how would you classify the um... – the relationship between Zimmer and Spielman, the uh, coach and GM with the Vikings. You know, I think that it's had, um, you know, it's had, it's been effective by and large throughout the last few years. I mean, he's been uh, Spielman's been the GM since 2012. Zimmer signed on in 2014, and, and for the most part, they've been synced up uh, in terms of their contracts, and, and they currently are both uh, headed into their final year. Uh, under contract, so a lame duck year, I would anticipate that both will get extensions. I mean, certainly Spielman after what he did in the draft. Um, but, in, you know, it's going to depend on what ownership wants to do based on the current economic climate, based on, you know, if, if and when we have a season. I mean, we have one scheduled, but, you know, 
I do think that they, they have really worked in lockstep uh, most of the way, at least publicly, outwardly facing. That's how it's appeared. Um, and this year, especially with so many needs on the defensive side of the ball, where Mike Zimmer uh, is experiencing a lot of turnover after losing pretty much all of his secondary. Um, they had the franchise, Anthony Harris, the safety. I mean, there's a lot of moving parts that um, Spielman was able to address and help out with in the draft. So I think that they were certainly on the same page about that. Um, I think what it's going to come down to as far as job security, extensions, uh, how much longer both of them are here, is going to be the quarterback situation. They had to extend Kirk Cousins because they needed the cap space to do it. And, you know, it doesn't hurt that you have a little bit more stability at the position, but ultimately that's what Spielman's going to be judged on. Uh, and Zimmer, too, probably to a certain degree, depending upon what happens in the next few, you know, this season and beyond that. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Hi, everybody. On ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. This is Under the Hood. Listen to me. Under the Hood podcasts are available now on the all-new ESPN Chicago app. Available on your device now. This is ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Very special guest, Chris Zellner from the Between the Sheets podcast. It's time for Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday coming up in our next half hour. If you're a wrestling fan of Noah one, tell them to come to their listening device every Tuesday night. We give you something wrestling, something sports entertainment. We got Chris Zellner on to talk, talk about his uh, new podcast that he's got going. That's all part of uh, Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday, also archived on the ESPN Chicago app for prior episodes. So we will continue our NFC North preview. We'll see. We heard about the Vikings and the Lions. What about the Packers? Rob Domofsky talked to him recently. Rob Domofsky covers the Packers for NFL Nation on ESPN.com. And I asked Rob, like, what stood out most about the Packers and what they did in the offseason? Well, it's got to be the quarterback, uh, Jordan Love. I don't mean – usually when I say the quarterback, it's Aaron Rodgers. In this case, as you know, they made, the, I think, one of the biggest stirs in, in the draft by uh, taking, you know, the the most likely heir apparent when, um, you know, Rodgers has said that he wants to play at least four more years, which is what his contract is, and considering they were coming off a 13-3 and NFC championship game season. So – uh, you know, if you sat here and you said, are they a better team than they were last year? Are they worse or are they the same? Um, I would probably lean toward the same. I, I, it's hard to say that they're better because they didn't really add any major impact players that you think will help them right away. Any comments or thoughts from Aaron Rodgers about all this here in the offseason? Yeah, Rogers. Uh, the last time that we heard from him, Jonathan, I believe was oh a few weeks before the draft. Uh, he was on ESPN um, Wisconsin, and he was asked specifically about what he would think if they were if they took a quarterback in the first round. And he basically said that he'd be fine with it. Uh, now it's easy to say that when um, it hasn't happened. Uh, he's been radio silent since it has, so I guess we don't really know. Um, but I, I, the biggest shocker to me was not that they took a quarterback, but that in rounds two or three, they didn't come back and take a receiver um, and really give Rodgers something that he, I'm sure, felt like would help him right away. Because obviously, um, you know, having Jordan Love pick doesn't help him right now. It reminds me a lot of what Favre would say. Um, you know, in the last couple of years in Green Bay, when they picked Rodgers, they picked a defensive tackle. He basically was like, how does this help me right now? So um, 
you know, that's the biggest thing I think that, that stands out is just, you know, are they doing everything they can to get over the hump and, and make another run in the next couple of years, uh, you know, with, with Rogers and, um, you know, you can look at it a couple of ways. You could say, well, they, they think they're pretty good because they were 13 and three and they were right there, or they don't think they were very good. So they're building for the future. I, I guess you could look at it both ways. Rob Domofsky covers the Packers for NFL Nation. He joins me, Jonathan Hood, on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Rob, you and I have not talked about this in the past. Now, this thought this would be a great time to talk about the similarities or differences in football philosophy from Gutenkunst to yeah. Ted Thompson when he was the GM. What, what what's, what's the big difference or something similar to both regimes? Uh, there, yeah, it's a good question. There are some definite similarities, but there's some key differences either. As you know, Ted Thompson was really averse to free agency, and the, and the free agency did sign typically were guys you know later in their career that didn't have a lot of options you know, from other teams. I mean, you think about Charles Woodson, um, when they signed him here in 06, you know, this was really like, it was like here or Tampa and Tampa wanted him to play safety and he wanted to play corner. So he came here. Julius Peppers at the time he signed here, didn't have a ton of, of options. Um, you know, Martellus Bennett, one of the last free agent signings he made, it turns out to be a disastrous one. Didn't have a lot of options when he signed here. Uh, Gutekunst, um, what, Big last year with younger free agents, Darius Smith, Preston Smith, of course, Adrian Amos, you guys know, the former Bear. Mm-hmm. Um, this year he had to go a little bit uh, more conservative and, and didn't spend as much money, but he is definitely more willing to dive into free agency than Ted Thompson was. On the flip side, he, is, uh, he has not changed the philosophy of drafting receivers high. Uh, the last time the Packers drafted a receiver – in the first round was Javon Walker in 2002. Um, Gutekunst obviously has not taken one uh, in the first round in his three drafts. In fact, he hasn't taken one higher than the fourth round. Um, he also has said many, many times that he knows finding quarterbacks is the most important thing, or at least he believes that. And, uh, you know, he, he has shown that. He worked for Ron Wolf, who uh, obviously made the trade for Brett Favre. He worked for Ted Thompson, who, who picked Aaron Rodgers um, when Rodgers sort of fell into his lap in the 05 draft. And he, he knows he, his legacy is ultimately going to be judged on whether he can find a quarterback, Jonathan, that can give this franchise another decade plus of stability. And, and I think that's why he made the move with Jordan Love when he did. So so maybe Gutenkun sees the window closing on the Packers' chances to another championship under Rodgers? Is that how you – would you characterize I mean, it like that? Yeah, you can't – I mean, you can't rule that out, although, um, you know, Rodgers himself said right after the 49ers game, uh, the loss that he – how excited he was that he thought the window was still open for several more years, in part because of some of the big free agents that Gutekunst signed last offseason. So it's a little bit of a mixed message, Um but the one thing that he, he has said, he being the GM, that he has to weigh both short-term and long-term consequences. If, if you were in a situation where you had a coach and general manager who were one and the same, I highly doubt they would have taken Jordan Love or any other quarterback in the first round this year. But maybe that's the argument for separating the, the two jobs because you have to have somebody that can think both short-term and long-term. You know, Rob, 
I know it looks different from your seat when you're covering this team on a daily basis, but when I'm watching Packers 49ers in the regular season in the playoffs, yep. it's 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 like the Packers not even on the field. It's almost oh, I it's, agree. It's, yeah, like, it's like the close. it's like the Lions yeah. or the Bears playing San Francisco. <laughs> I mean, I'm just no, I, I 100 agree with you. I, I thought um, you know it was they're not it wasn't even it wasn't even the same ballpark and. You know, I, I remember we a bunch of us asked Gutekunst after the season, do you, do you have to sort of tailor your team now to try to beat the 49ers? Because if, if you remember, Jonathan, this was back in the 90s when I first started covering the team, mm-hmm. the Packers couldn't beat the Cowboys in the mid-90s. I mean, they lost to them you know, before they broke through and won, and won their Super Bowl in 96. I think they lost to the Cowboys three straight years in the playoffs, if I'm not mistaken. And Ron Wolf was basically saying, we, we've got to figure out a way to beat these guys. We can't beat the Cowboys. You know, Gutekun said basically that, hey, look, you know, the, the, whoever the best team is might change from year to year, so you can't just focus it on one team. He might be right. But, you know, they, they got run over um, by that team. I mean, the 49ers beat him in the playoff game by passing it only eight times. I mean, that's just incredible to me. So um, I thought maybe, you know, they'd address some of the middle of their defense and, and maybe shore that area up a little bit because their pass rush is good. Uh, but when you spend all that money on pass rushers and then a team basically says we're not going to pass the ball, um, what are you going to do? This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Wrestling fans, are you ready? This is Tuesday. You people bought a ticket to see me! Wrestling Tuesday with Jonathan Hood. First of all, Dusty Rhodes, I think what you are is a big, ugly, low-class, redneck goose. That's what I think you are. Yeah, I put it. I know I put it. But I'm most of all, the baddest man around in the world today. Follow the show at WrestlingTWT on Twitter and Instagram. But remember, my fireflies, as always, I'll light the way. And all you have to do is let me in. Tuesday, Wrestling Tuesday. The bottom line is... And all my magnificent, you're going to be mine all night long. Here's Jonathan Hood. It is Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday with Jonathan Hood right here on ESPN 1000 and the brand new ESPN Chicago app. Thanks so much for being with us. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WrestlingTWT. Every Tuesday at 8.30, our special time, 8.30 on Tuesdays, we give you something wrestling, give you something sports entertainment. Tonight, we talk to a friend of the program, Chris Zellner, from the Between the Sheets podcast. Wherever you get your podcast, look for Between the Sheets podcast. And not just Between the Sheets with Chris Zellner and David Bixen's band, but no, there is something special that it stands out to me about Between the Sheets because if you go to that feed, you can find a brand new podcast that's part of the family for Chris Zellner. That's the Pay Window. The Pay Window is something that Dusty Rhodes would say very often in promos, and Chris Zellner joins us here on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. Uh, Chris Jonathan Hood, thanks so much for your time. Anytime, man. Glad to be back on the show. Absolutely. Uh, so this is this is right up my alley. The pay window. You just had your first episode, and we've asked those that are longtime wrestling fans to check that out on that Between the Sheets podcast feed. This is eighty nine. So eighty nine. I was a junior in high school. It was my worst year. 
uh, in high school. And the reason why is because me and my friends would always talk about what's going on in wrestling in 89. That's probably why I went to summer school. I spent so, We spent so much time <laughs> trying to figure out Flair, Steamboat, Flair, Funk, what, 80, what, what's Gary Hart going to do? So that was my whole existence in school in 89. I had to sharpen things up in 90, but 89 was the worst. But it was the best because, for me, it was so intriguing. Tell us about the podcast um, uh, and its origin, The Pay Window. Okay, uh, about five years ago, when I started my first uh, podcast series, my Exile on Bad Street series, which I still do, um, the the second or third episodes, both of them actually, uh, the second one was about uh, the Universal Wrestling Federation, Bill Watson's promotion, and the death of, of that promotion in 87. And then we decided, well, we might as well go ahead and cover the death of Jim Crocker Promotions in the episode after that. So the thought process was, and, and, and Dylan Hale's my co-host on the pay window, um, was on those shows. And, we always planned on doing something um, to, you know, maybe start up and, and go through it in 89. And time went on, you know, Between the Sheets started. Between the Sheets takes up a huge amount of time for me. Um, so it just it, it, it fell by the wayside. And over the past few months, I've had several people ask me, when are you going to do a podcast about WCW? Because WCW is one of the most popular things we talk about on the Between the Sheets podcast. The whole WCW everybody thing that I started up years ago. Right. Uh, gained some traction on Twitter and stuff, and people use it. And um, I just thought about it, and I was like, well, it needs to happen. And we, we got, we've got this pandemic going on, and, you know, I was thinking, man, I need something new, something fresh, something different. And I talked to Dylan Hales, and uh, Dylan works for uh, Indie Wrestling TV, IWTV. And, of course, there's no live wrestling right now, so his schedule is not as hectic as it normally is. So I, I ran it by him. I said, would you be interested in doing this with me? Because I wanted to do it, but I wanted him to be part of it. Because... Me and him, we both live, breathe WCW in, in, a, in our childhood because I'm from South Metro Atlanta. I'm in between Atlanta and Macon. So I'm surrounded by WCW wrestling every, on each side of, of where I'm at, from the north to the south to the east and the west. WCW was running shows near me. And Dylan, at the time, was living in Charleston, South Carolina, where they were running shows in South Carolina all the time. And he had a friend of his that, that uh, was able to get him tickets to the shows in Charleston. So he was going to a lot of WCW shows. I was going to WCW shows. So this, I mean, this was something that, you know, is near and dear to our heart and, and, and doing a child, you know, to our, from our childhood. And the thing is, is that the main, the main crux of the whole thing was um, Guy Evans wrote a great book, The Nitro book about uh, the history of nitro wcw from that era from 95 to the end and you know i've had like i said i've had people ask me what about the history of wcw before nitro and there's a lot there so my thought process was okay 
let's do this kind of like how we do between the sheets, how we do our between the sheets, Patreon shows where we go week by week, but only WCW and it, it, you know, start with the NWA, then when they turn into WCW. So where Exile on Bass Street left off five years ago at Starcade 88 in the end of 88, the first episode picks up in January 1989. So what I do is, you know, I, I use the, the three major newsletters of the era, which is Dave Meltzer's Wrestling Observer, of course, mm-hmm. Wade Keller's Pro Wrestling Torch, which was just really starting to gain its foothold in this era. It wasn't what it would become, but it's getting there. And the most important one, probably for the first four years of WCW, at least it was going to be to our show, is Matt Watch by Steve Beverly. Steve Beverly is a guy who um, is in the television industry. He was living in uh, Jackson, Tennessee, uh, Columbus, Georgia, before he moved to Jackson. So Steve Beverly was the insider. And he was treated differently from the other newsletter guys by the guys at WCW, such as Jim Hurd and Chad Petra, the two bosses, the big bosses, because they took him seriously because he's not a wrestling guy. He's a TV guy. So he's able to get all these on-the-record conversations with these two guys. And as the first show proves, I mean, he gets stuff that nobody else would get. And as the series will go along, I mean, you're going to experience some stuff that a lot of people have never heard of before. Kind of like what Guy Evans did in Nitro book. The guy did it with people inside the company that were not specifically on the talent side. He went with people that were part of production and people that worked in the office. So he got this whole different vibe of WCW than what you normally would hear about. So our show from 89 to the beginning of 92 will have that from Matt watch. And it's, uh, it's, it's really great stuff. And it's something that, uh, I'm, I'm definitely excited about. We, we try to do a month of show. We did January. Uh, the next show will be coming out in, the, in a week or two where we'll cover February on this show. We'll actually have some big wrestling to talk about because we have a Clash of the Champions and Shot Down Rumble in a matter of a week, you know, between each other, five days. So we'll actually have some wrestling to talk about. Plus, we have all kind of other stuff to talk about as well. So basically, what this show is going to hit all the news, all the the rumors, uh, TV ratings. It's going to be the most comprehensive look at WCW that any podcast has ever done. Chris Zellner from the Between the Sheets podcast with me, Jonathan Hood, on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. So I think one of the reasons why this struck me when I saw that in the feed and listened to the podcast, Chris, is that this, in 89, I'm watching the NWA as an NWA fan and WCW fan without Dusty Rhodes for the first time. So so after, 80, after Starkeed 88, here comes... Uh, the NWA without Dusty Rhodes around, and it was it was not odd. Actually, for me, it was refreshing because for someone who went to NWA events at the UIC Pavilion all the years it, it ran here, you know, it'd be eight thousand people every time they'd run here, and they'd all look down the aisle during the main event looking for the run in. 
because it was never a clean finish in the main event for a Ric Flair world title match. Like everyone would just crane their head down the rampway on the right side of the building, waiting for JJ, waiting for whoever to interfere in a Ric Flair match. So I think that it was refreshing in a way to see, not see Rhodes and to be able to see a different level or a different look for the NWA at that time. What do you remember most about Rhodes not being in the NWA in those first couple of months? Because you've, you've covered it. It was definitely different. Yeah, I mean, it's a totally different philosophy, totally different style of wrestling. There's a talent turnover. Um, there's a different look. You know, but that's not, I mean, that's more of a Turner thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and the thing is, is that a lot of this early stuff wasn't for the positive. Um, we'll get, I mean, we get into it more on the on the next show uh, because George Scott takes over as the booker in the middle of January. And we really touch on him towards the end of the show and stuff he's, he's implementing in. But it really starts taking a hold in February. And, yeah, I mean, that's the, it's like night and day in a lot of ways. I mean, there, there's some familiar, you know, faces and, and the guys that stayed. And, of course, you know, some of the, the look. But as 89 goes along, I mean, yeah, it, it becomes a totally different promotion. And that's good. I mean, Dusty and his crew had a great run. They really did. I mean, they have, they have four years. Of, of uh, you know, great television. They did tremendous business, but it's time for a change. And the new the new bosses, I mean, they basically knew that, and they tried to force Dusty out, and they, and they succeeded, which we talk about on the show in the contract negotiations with Dusty. You said I don't want to spoil it. You can listen to it, but they asked Dusty to do something that he didn't want to do, and he 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 they. Because they knew he wouldn't do it, and they basically said, "Well, if you're not going to do it, then we're, you know we'll let you go." And it was like I said, it was needed. Dusty needed to get re- refreshed and recharged. Um, Ric Flair needed Dusty Rose away, you know, and we needed new blood in, such as Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. And now Ricky the Dragon Steamboat comes in, and now you the rest is history, you know, with history of Ric Flair. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Go! Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood. Follow us on the gram at IGJHood and at ESPN underscore Chicago. ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports. Chris Elner with us on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday on ESPN 1000 and the ESPN Chicago app. Download the big uh, Between the uh, Sheets podcast, the pay window. The first episode is out on that feed for Between the Sheets. I will ask you about wrestling in general, especially during that day. Of course, we're talking about you talking about George Scott. At some point, this will be a conversation piece on that podcast. George Scott coming in and having those that don't really understand the business or not really wrestlers being part of the booking committee. But I, I will I'll ask you about this generally about the boys running the creative. I just uh, uh, all the podcasts that you have done and some of my talking points on this show is always is a sour taste when the boys uh, run the creative. And I'm wondering, even as in the modern day in AEW, how much are the boys running Tony Khan? Because to me, the one thing about Vince 
in the WWE, and there's some things I disagree with them on. There's no question, but at least there's one man, one voice um, that is has the final say. How much has that really doomed wrestling territories over the years, where the boys are making decisions more so than a head person? A lot of them. I mean, WCW, uh, God knows. I mean, for years. I mean, these booking committees. That's one thing. I yeah, a book, you know, booking committee never works. There needs to be one person to be in charge, and they need to be the one to be the final decision. And, I mean, it's good to have guys to give ideas, but having you know these committees, it's just it's detrimental to the company. Um, it can work. I mean, an active wrestler booking can work, but that active wrestler has to be someone who is secure in himself and is not going to push himself to the moon. Um, they got to know, you know, where to draw the line at. And, you know, that's kind of where Dusty, you know, fell off was he kept, you know, pushing himself. Um, he never took a step back, so to speak. I mean, yeah, he wasn't always in the world title scene, but he was always, the show was about Dusty. The TV shows were about Dusty, no matter what. The guys were talking about Dusty all the time, faces mm-hmm. and heels. So, I mean, that that's one thing. Um, but like, it can work. like I said, Bill Dundee in Mid-South, I mean, Bill Watts told him when he hired him, uh, you're not pushing yourself. You're, I mean, if you want to work, you work low-card, mid-card, you know, matches. That's it. And that worked. And they had a tremendous run of business in 84 and 85. I mean, so it can happen, but there needs to be that one person that's not worried about pushing themselves to be the one, to be the be-all, end-all. Now, I understand where that, that mentality comes from is, like, if you're an active wrestler and you're, you're the booker, your mentality is, well, I know I'm not going to screw myself over. So I understand that, but it's just, it's way too many instances of it failing. There's more of it failing than there is more of it succeeding. Let's put that way. All right, last thing I have for you, and I appreciate your time, Chris. So I grew up in Chicago, so I grew up with uh, Vern's TV and the AWA and Dick the Bruiser at Indianapolis. So that was my two regional promotions along with everything else. Bob out the Luce. Satellite. And Bob Luce, yes. <laughs> and crazy Bob <laughs> Luce and Ben's Auto Sales. So that was that was part of my childhood. Bobo Brazil uh, pr- promoting uh, one-stop ribs. Uh, so that was <laughs> unbelievable. Uh, uh, and, and a, a young-slash-old Bobo Brazil talking about one-stop uh, and selling ribs and beer by the case. Um, so that that was my regional. For you, it's in the South with the, with the NWA and WCW. If if you had your choice of a wrestling toy to, territory to grow up in, which one would you have rather grown up in? When I was five years old, George Championship Wrestling died, mm-hmm. basically. And then Joe Clark Promotions took over, which they just promoted Atlanta. We weren't a territory. We were just Jim Clark Promotions. So I, if I was – if I had my choice, of having a territory to grow up in, <sighs> I probably been Memphis. <laughs> probably been <laughs> Memphis because Memphis <laughs> Memphis was just so wild and entertaining, and 
Yeah, Mid-South was great. And Mid-South would be my number two. But Memphis is like every every week you just got this wild television show. And, you know, you go to these shows and have these wild gimmick matches. And it's just craziness every week. So that would be the one. I, I wish I wish I would have was older. I wish I could have been around when Georgia Championship Wrestling was its at its peak in the late seventies. And you know, I, I was born in seventy nine, so I was a baby, when, you know, in the early eighties. But I would have loved to have been around because I heard hear stories about people that went, you know, and, and all this stuff. Like, man, this is just sounds amazing. But you know. I'm just, it just didn't work out that way. Although I had Crockett and WCW, but it just wasn't the same. It wasn't a straight up territory, you know? So that would be it. Memphis and then Mid-South right behind it. Absolutely. So I wrote down for me, Mid-Atlantic, like seventies all the way through, uh, for Mid-Atlantic to see a young Bob Cottle. If he ever was ever young, a young Bob Cottle there, um, (laughs) Uh, on the stick mic and the headphones there, turning around, looking at the green screen and, and doing that. Just that whole <laughs> that whole Piper run, just that all everything from Mid Atlantic, which I just I I'm so fascinated with that uh, that territory. Georgia Championship Wrestling and surprisingly Portland. I would have I would have Portland's liked to, fun. Yeah, I love Portland. For the short trips they talk about in Portland and uh you just I think you just downloaded something uh from Portland or Rip Oliver's in a two out of three fall match against uh, Tom Zink and had to remember every city that that Portland was going to. Like, I can't believe that he remembered exactly what day and what city that they had to go to in Portland, in the Portland area. And, and, I was like, wow. And they were cutting, and they were cutting promos between the fall. Yes. I mean, they, yeah, they're up there in, in, the, in the Eagle's Nest with Don Koss doing promos in between falls and going back to the ring. I mean, Portland's a hoot. I love Portland wrestling. Absolutely. That'd, that'd be a cool a cool place to go. That was at the flea market. I mean, St. Bar's flea market and stuff, sports arena. I mean, and Don Owen. Don Owen is a trip. You know, the, the old school promoter. I mean, and, and they had a lot of guys at Homestead, like Billy Jack and Rip Oliver and Buddy Rose. And Piper was absurdly loyal to Don Owen. Like, he wouldn't even wrestle on WF shows against Don Owen. I mean, he would he would not do it. He wrestled for Don Owen while in the WWF in 1985. That's crazy. He booked he booked the promotion while he was in the WWF in 1989. <laughs> Although Lynn Denton was the booker of record, but Piper was the booker. So I mm-hmm. mean, yeah, that's yeah. Portland's a great promotion. I love Portland, but Mid Atlantic. Oh yeah, Mid Atlantic. I love Mid Atlantic. I mean, I I would advise everyone to go watch the uh, early shows on the WWE Network that they got out there from '81, '82. It is so fun watching. Watching them in the studio, pre-Dusty, you know, when they got these guys in there. And I wish they had the real older stuff, but, yeah, 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 Midland's great. So we ask you to go to the Between the Sheets podcast. And again, look for the pay window. I'm really excited about what Chris and his crew have uh, together. And uh, episode two will be dropping pretty soon. So check that out. Uh, friend of the program, Chris Zellner, with us. Chris, as always, I appreciate you coming on the show, and thanks for uh, doing this. Absolutely. Can't wait to be back on again. It's uh, Chris Zellner with us here on Tuesday Wrestling Tuesday. Talk to you tomorrow at 6. This is Under the Hood with Jonathan Hood on ESPN 1000, Chicago's home for sports.